Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to episode 27 of A Grand Tour with my great-great-granddad. My name's Ed Hill. If you're tuning in again, welcome back. Thanks for listening. And if you're tuning in for the first time, bonjour, ciao, hola. It's nice to welcome you for the first time to the podcast. Just to say, the podcast is based around the journals and history of my great-great-grandfather William Scott's journals written way back in the 1840s about his travels around Europe as an engineer and then the rest of the world. Just to say where we are and where we're going with things, at the end of the last episode, William had taken you along the railway track on the journey from Milan to Monza on this railway line, which was the second oldest railway line in Italy. So he was driving along and pointing out things along the way. And then he went on to describe some rather grisly accidents that had happened to people, usually by basically getting in the way of trains and being hit by them, that had happened during his time as a superintendent of the railway, which basically lasts for about two years. And that's really the point that we got to in the last episode I should also just mention that, actually, that since the last episode was recorded, David Roberts, who I've entered into correspondence with through a blog that I'd read of his online about the Monza-Milan Railway, David now lives in Monza, and inspired by William's description of the journey, he's actually retraced as far as he can some of the sites and locations that are still there today that date back to 1840 that can still be found in Milan. I mean, I was aware there were some things still existing, like the original station in Milan I knew was still there, but as a hotel these days. And there are one or two other points along the line. The route out of Milan isn't the exact same as it was in William's time. Obviously, you can imagine there's been a huge amount of development over that period, but it sort of then does pick up the main line probably about, I suppose, two or three miles out of Milan, then follows it on to Monza. And uh, amazingly, David has managed to find quite a few of the locations that William mentions on that journey in the last episode. So if you go to David's blog, he sort of updated the original one that he did, showing the various sites along the way that he's found that are still there to this day. I've put a link to it actually on the Twitter page and on the Facebook page, but it's at www.robertspublications.com. If you go on there and if you go onto the blog section, you'll see this updated blog. A British railway pioneer in Monza. And you'll see the pictures, the up-to-date pictures of those locations as they are today. And you can also see them on the Facebook page as well. So I'd like to thank David for doing that. 
He's done quite a bit of detective work, working out where he thinks the old route was and where it is still today and which bits are still there. The usual options are open if you want to make contact. There's the Twitter or X page, which is Scott of the Historic, and that's at 3G Grand Tour. That's the number three and then G Grand Tour. There's the Facebook page, which is at Grand Tour with my great-great-granddad. And there's also a Mastodon account, which is GG Grand Tour. And that is at scotted at universadon.com. So those are all ways with which you can contact me or message me if you want to discuss anything that's come up in the podcast. Also to say that uh, the podcast is universally available pretty well on all podcast platforms. Also, I just thought I'd very briefly mention something that a friend of mine said to me the other day. If your time is precious, and much as I try to keep these podcasts as short as I can, they usually end up being around about the 55 to an hour range. And if your time is precious, he said, you know what you can do? He said, you can notch the speed up at which the podcast is played back, which I didn't know. But yeah, sure enough, if you go on your player, probably down on the right-hand side, on the Acast one, you'll see a number, and it says something like 0.1, something along those lines. Well, on the Acast one, if you knock it up a notch to 1.1, it'll play it just a fractionally bit faster, and you'll lose about five minutes of the length of the podcast, and you won't really notice any difference in the voice or the music or anything. Notch it up to 1.2, you begin to start noticing it a bit, and it starts to sound a bit strange. If you go to 1.3, then I start to sound like Porky Pig. <laughs> but certainly if you notch it up by one, whatever the measurement is, and I imagine it varies from various podcast platforms, but if you kick it up one, it just plays it a little bit faster, and you'll save yourself about five minutes. You can get on with your day, use that five minutes to do so many more extra things that you couldn't have done while you were glued avidly to my every word. Believe me, I am painfully aware of trying to keep these things as short as I can and not detain you any more than is necessary. So just to then finally say where we are at the beginning of this episode, Williams talked about these accidents that have happened. He then goes on to say about his time finishing at the railway and kind of gives a little bit of a summary of his time and his involvement in it, which is quite revealing. And then he goes on, because he's still got a bit of time left before he leaves Milan, so he then goes on to explain a little bit of his travels in the region, going a little bit further afield than the city of Milan and Monza and a little bit farther away. And that kind of pretty well then will be the end of this particular episode. So here we go with the next instalment. October the 31st. The new Bishop of Monza was solemnly installed into his sacred office on this day. The tower of the cathedral was illuminated in the evening, the effect of which was very fine. This occasion drew out a vast concourse of people to the old city, of which we had our share, carrying upwards of 5,000 passengers, a great number for that season of the year. November the 1st, Festival of All Saints. Train from Monza in the evening, 22 carriages, upwards of 800 passengers. November 2nd, Festival of All Souls. The burying grounds on this day swarming with people, as all persons who have had any relation or friends died within the year, make it a point to visit, and pray beside their graves 
for the repose of their souls. Most of the churches also on this day hung with black externally and internally, and masses celebrated for the repose of those departed who have got friends willing and able to pay for the ceremony. February 8th. Today began the celebration of carnival in Milan. In the days of the olden time, the carnival in most of the principal cities of Italy was an object of great splendour and attraction, and generally lasted a month, concluding on the Saturday evening, previous to Ash Wednesday. And though at the present day the period of its duration is normally the same, it is only during the last week that the maskers, so that's just another word for mask wearers, that the maskers appear in public, being generally confined during the three first weeks to the theatres and the mansions of the nobility. Rome, Naples, Venice and Milan are the only places at present where the carnival is celebrated with any degree of splendour. At the latter place, for the last five or six days, the ramparts, the Corso de Porta Orientale, that of the Porte Romana and Porta Nuovo, from two in the afternoon till midnight are crowded with equipages carriages again, of every description, shape, form and size. These are mostly filled with persons in masquerade dresses, and the balconies through the whole line are filled with the beauty and fashion of the city. Furthermore, there is an incessant warfare being carried on betwixt the maskers and the spectators. It used to be the custom formerly to pelt each other with sweetmeats in the shape of comfits, sugared almonds, etc., but being too expensive for the present generation, they content themselves with balls of chalk about the size of peas. Every carriage and balcony being provided with a large linen basket of this material, and the occupiers of each armed with a long iron or wooden ladle, the continual firing is kept up until either the material is expended or the parties withdraw on account of fatigue from the contest. In the evenings there are masked balls at all the theatres, that at the Alla Scala, the whole of the pit floored over level with the stage, and the two noble saloons thrown up to the public is a most superb affair, all ranks and classes mixing in the mazy dance, or more stately promenade, with the greatest affability and good humour, the whole affair passing off with the utmost decorum. And now a poem by William Scott. The Carnival It was the merry time of carnival, and Milan was all glittering and gay, with fairy lights that streamed from bower to hall, soft bursts of music and the rich array, of merry maskers and the noisy squall, of serenaders pitched in the wrong key, and over all the moon diffused a splendour of silver light, soft, tremulous and tender. Whole hosts were out around the bright canals, young sprigs of fashion and the grey in years, and dark-eyed maidens throwing out their spells to catch the hearts of gay young cavaliers. Your Milan girls have eyes as deep as wells, as fathomless and as their waters clear, and penetrating sighs and tones and lips, whose bloom would throw a rose into eclipse. Through the dark avenues and mazy passes, which tall houses robbed in ebony shade, and where the moonlight fell in blending masses down the rich domes and sculptured colonnade. The stranger held his way, the various classes that formed that motley multitude surveyed, some with contempt and some with pitying eye, the wandering pilgrim as he passed them by. Right, so I just thought I'd stop at this point after William's impressive poem.
Or is it? I don't know. It's hard to judge poetry, really, isn't it? I mean, it's not a bad go. It's certainly nicely expressed, I suppose, the whole atmosphere of Carnival as he observes it. It's the shape of things to come in terms of his poetry. They're often a kind of reflection on some of the observations and things that he's seen, but expressed in a more romantic or artistic way. Poetry is hard to judge, isn't it? Some poems speak to you very personally and others don't. <laughs> so what can you say? I suppose it's a fairly black and white thing, really, when it comes to liking poems. Actually, I have a bit of a confession to make, because when I first came across the poems, I suppose reading the handwritten ones, I didn't realise that it was actually William's own poetry. For some reason, I just assumed that he was quoting poems that he'd already read somewhere else, written by another poet. So uh, <laughs> I don't know why... I think it was after a while I kept seeing these initials after the poem. He just writes WS. And so I was a bit slow on the uptake. So that kind of changed my um, thoughts about it, I suppose. Because all of a sudden you think, oh, he's, he's actually going an extra mile here with his creative writing. Just thought I'd say a little bit about Carnival. I actually estimated the date because William doesn't give the actual date in his journal. Like Easter, it varies a little bit each year, but February the 8th seemed a fairly good stab at guessing the date in which it happened in 1840, but I couldn't find a way of working that out mathematically. So uh, whether it was February the 8th, I don't know, but it sounds about right because it you know, basically can kind of go from any time between early February to March, so it was an estimation. Carnival initially, I mean, it's the same around the world, you know, celebrated Mardi Gras, whatever you want to call it. It's the same celebration. Apparently it has its origins back in Egyptian and even Greek times, fairly pagan elements to the ceremony and its origins. It's actually the word carnival means to get rid of meat. So it happens just before Lent, obviously, when there's an element of fasting and stuff. So it's still obviously a big event in Italy. There's a few very famous ones like Venice and uh, Milan, perhaps not one of the better known ones, but apparently in Milan they celebrate it for four days longer than the rest of Italy because uh, this dates back to some the speculation, actually, whether this is true or not, but it's said to be because uh, Bishop was meant to be travelling back from some travels he'd been doing and the population of Milan wouldn't start Lent until he officially declared it. So they were waiting and waiting and this is why they carry on doing Carnival four days longer than anyone else in Italy. It's called the Ambrosian Carnival, I think is uh, how they describe it. In Italy, you know, it's very glamorous sometimes. These maskers, you know, they wear like the Commedia dell'arte, if you're familiar with those kind of stock characters in Italian drama of uh, sort of rather long noses and hooked noses and exaggerated eyebrows and these masks that they wear. Or in Venice, I think it's you'd say it's a bit more sophisticated with 17th century attire and masks looking all very glamorous. I think you've seen quite a few films where they shoot them during carnival happening in Italy, you know. <laughs> I'm sure I've seen James Bond films and things like that where some chase is happening during carnival and people get knocked off their bicycles <laughs> wearing <laughs> extremely glamorous attire or whatever. But I suppose obviously it's a very picturesque thing to show in a film or have it as a setting or backdrop. 
only really got to Google Carnival in Italy and you'll see all the images, sort of familiar images of, of the kind of things that people wear. And uh, yeah, I quite like this idea of people throwing bits of chalk at people because they're cheaper than the comfits or sugared almonds that they originally threw. I don't know, is chalk still cheaper by, <laughs> by the pound than chocolate sweets and almonds? I don't know. I think these days chalk would be more expensive per pound, <laughs> such as the evolution of food manufacturing. I don't know, what would be a cheap thing to throw? Uh, marbles? No, they'd be a bit dangerous, wouldn't they? Anyway, I like the idea they all have a spoon that they can flick these various confectionery and consumables at each other with. I don't know if that still goes on. I think there's a lot of chalk powder throwing and rather like you see in India as well. Anyway... That's it, you know, it's, it's this big celebration that's sort of university done in different guises around the world, but still very big in Italy. Rather sadly, we don't really do it in this country. Our carnivals seem to consist of a procession of rather tired-looking floats being driven through town centre high streets, promoting mundane businesses like nail bars and tanning salons all on the back of a articulated lorry to uh, loud disco music being <laughs> blasted out as they go by. We don't seem to have the glamour that surrounds it in Italy. Um, <laughs> it's like carnival these days, I'd say it's a, a bit naff really, isn't it? In fact, I think a lot of towns don't do carnivals anymore. When I was a, a lowly cub reporter on the Ashford local newspaper, the carnival basically had come to an end and it was because they couldn't afford the insurance anymore. <laughs> It was too too costly to insure against public liability. So uh, there we are. The glamour of UK carnivals has petered out due to um, financial problems. I think they're becoming a, a rarer and rarer sight. But I don't know if they'll be particularly missed, <laughs> to be honest. If you want to see a carnival, go to Milan or Venice. I think that's the conclusion. Spend a bit of money, jump on a plane <laughs> and spend a few days there. That would be a lot, a lot better. February 15th. Went to Monza by the first train on this morning and took with me my daughter, Isabella, thence to Cassano di Adda, a considerable town situated on lofty ground on the right bank of the river Adda. There was a large manufactory erecting at the time for the spinning of flax, to be driven by water power, the wheel and principal part of the machinery being from England. The situation of Cassano is particularly pleasant, the houses on the bank of the river being built on terraces and commanding a beautiful and extensive prospect. The old castle and city of Bergamo, the town of Lodi and Trevelio, and a great number of considerable villages. In the distance, only the Alps of Switzerland and the Tyrol, but also the distant mountains of the Pyrenees. At Cassana also is a large and splendid palazzo belonging to the Conti de Adda, the remains of a large and ancient castle, the property of the same individual a large and beautiful church, and some smaller ones, a neat theatre, good hotels and cafes. This town laying on the direct road betwixt Milan and Venice occasions it to be a place of considerable traffic. The river Adda here is a stream of considerable breadth, and its waters very rapid, especially during the summer, as a consequence of the snow melting on the mountains. 
It is not navigable, but there is an ancient bridge of three arches across it, which I must particularly mention as differing from all others I have seen. It consists of two tiers of arches, or two stories in height, and it appeared to me that after the erection of the original structure, they had found the piers too weak, as they were very slender and perpendicular to a great height, and being in fear of their stability, as at times a vast body of water descends, they had thrown in the intermediate arches across, as they are different in style, workmanship and material. So I found a picture of this on a print, but uh, it's a Getty image which would cost me rather a lot of money <laughs> to put on the website. But you can see this double-arched, one bridge on top of the other type affair. It's only a little bit because it's, it's really only caught in one corner of the picture. But apparently um, that bridge was actually demolished in the 19th century anyway, so it's not there now. After partaking of some refreshment, we started along with two English friends to visit the celebrated town of Lodi, which occupies so prominent a place in the campaigns of Napoleon. Lodi is a place of considerable size, and it is situated also on the banks of the Adda, and is very neat and regular in its general appearance. Like many of the Italian towns, which at one period supported themselves in the form of a republic, Lodi is surrounded by walls, slightly raised above the neighbouring plain. It contains several remarkable edifices, amongst which the cathedral is the first to attract attention being a very fine edifice and built of marble. The Church del Incoronato, the uh, Tempio Civico della Beata Vagina Incoronata, as it's now known, built by the well-known architect Bramante. I've written a note here, it says actually it was his pupil Giovanni Battaggio in 1488. <laughs> so we've got that wrong, but there we are. At least it was his pupil. Back to the church. The interior is painted in the most superb style by Clisto. So that's Clisto Piazza, who lived from 1500 to 1561, a scholar of Titian. The celebrated Parmesan cheese is made not at Parma, but at and about the town of Lodi, and is alone considered the best in Italy. There are also several manufacturers of earthenware, which are much celebrated. It was at this place that Napoleon gained the celebrated victory on May 10th, 1796, over the Austrians under Beaulieu. They had passed the Adda, evacuated Lodi, and taken a very strong position, defended by 30 pieces of cannon, which could be approached only by a narrow bridge over the Adda. Napoleon then formed a part of his forces into a closed column, brought the whole of his artillery into play, and charged at a quick step. The slaughter was dreadful, as the Austrian artillery swept down whole ranks at once on the bridge. The French wavered, but at this critical moment, the French generals, Berthier, Messina, Cervoni, Lannes, etc., placed themselves at the head of the column, forced their way over the bridge, and took the Austrian batteries. The Austrians fought bravely, both armies struggled with the greatest obstinacy, and victory long remained in suspense, till the division of Augereur, Charles-Pierre-Francois Augereur, came up and decided the fate of the battle. The Austrians, driven from their post, lost a part of their artillery, and above 3,000 men. But Beaulieu saved the honour of the Austrian army by a retreat conducted with coolness. The French loss was not less. If they did not lose 4,000 men, as the Austrians state, they certainly lost more than 2,000, which was their own account. Men of science have censured both generals. Napoleon for taking a post with such an immense sacrifice of men, 
of which he might have been master in 24 hours more, with comparative ease, and Beaulieu for having evacuated the town of Lodi in such haste as to neglect breaking down the bridge by which alone the enemy could approach his position. But it is idle to dispute where doctors disagree. Lodi remains one of the most striking military achievements of Napoleon, not merely for the personal courage he displayed, but from the boldness with which the action was planned and the energy with which it was executed. At Lodi, Napoleon received the title of Little Corporal. Population of Lodi, 14,000 persons, 17 miles southeast of Milan. So I'm going to stop here at this point. Just out of the blue, William suddenly mentions his daughter Isabella. Up until this point, he hasn't said anything about the rest of his family arriving or anything like that and joining him in Italy. Seems slightly odd. You'd think he might have noted the arrival of his wife and family in Italy. Well, actually, when he's in Mexico, he does make more of a entry about the joy, if you like, that he experiences seeing his wife and family again. But of course, in Mexico, he'd been out there on his own for a lot longer. I think it's about 18 months or maybe even as long as two years before his family joined him in Mexico. Whereas in Italy, I think it's only about four months. I think he refers to that later. It's funny with journals, isn't it? I have to say, I got into trouble once referring back to our uh, backpacking around India and I wrote a bit of a journal, nowhere near as extensive as uh, William's writings. And uh, I'd written a few entries and uh, I remember my wife looked at it and said... uh, well, you haven't mentioned me once in there. <laughs> and I sort of apologised and uh, I thought, yes, I should try and make a more overall picture of what was going on. Maybe there's something sort of inherently, well, maybe there's something inherently selfish about people in my family making journals and not referring to anybody else. Also, just to mention Kazana de Adder, I'm not going to say huge amounts about it other than that there are various historical buildings there, but probably the most notable is this castle that William refers to because it's right on the the sort of banks of the Adder River and there's a, a wall that kind of goes all the way down from the very top battlements, I suppose, all the way down right to the very edge of the river. So it's quite dramatic looking. I suppose at that time, also, as William refers to, it would have been fairly important as it was on the main route from Milan to Venice. Now, I just also wanted to say a quick thing here about William's reference to Parmesan cheese actually being made in Lodi, because he's not the only one to erroneously make this suggestion, because apparently Casanova, in his memoirs, said much the same thing and complained about the fact that the best cheese is not Parmesan, but the cheese made in Lodi. Well, they're both wrong, basically, because Parmesan cheese is made in a certain area. The cheese that William is probably thinking of is Grana Padano, which is very similar to Parmesan. It's a bit less crumbly and not quite as sharp tasting. But basically, it's it's virtually the same sort of cheese, but it's made under slightly less strict conditions than parmesan cheese is today. Parmesan cheese has to be aged for 12 months and the cows that produce the milk can only have eaten grass. They can't have eaten anything else, basically. And uh, Grana Padano is a bit more flexible in terms of what the cows that produce the milk can eat. And I don't think it's necessarily matured quite as long as uh, proper parmesan cheese is. I think, to be honest, you wouldn't 
certainly to an English person, you probably wouldn't notice much of a difference between the two. So it's perhaps an understandable mistake by William. I didn't realise this, but actually, because of their value, Parmesan cheese is actually quite often the cause of various criminal activities by the mafia and similar crime organisations because uh, they quite often steal it and then sell it in southern Italy. It's produced in northern Italy, but they steal it and then sell it in southern Italy. And that was going on until even quite recently. So um, it's, it's not just drugs and uh, hooch and cigarettes and other contraband that the mafia makes its money from. It's also Parmesan cheese. Lastly... I just thought I'd say a little bit about the Battle of Lodi. I really don't want to get into too much detail about it because details of battles can get very, very specific. So I will spare you a kind of blow-by-blow account of the Battle of Lodi other than to say that it was an early battle in Napoleon's career and after his various successes like the whiff of grape shot thing keeping the mob down in Paris and stuff like this, he was promoted... And French Revolutionary France was then going to go to war with Austria, which was part of the sort of remnants of the Holy Roman Empire. There was a very long border that sort of went all the way down Europe from the north to the south. And then there was then a border with the Italian states. Of course, Italy as a unified country didn't exist. So it was things like the Kingdom of Sardinia, Piedmont, Lombardy, etc. And don't get on my back, Napoleon fans about this because <laughs> I think you can get into trouble making <laughs> too many broad summaries as I think poor old Ridley Scott has had with his latest film about Napoleon which I saw the other day and I thought it was alright but anyway suffice to say Napoleon was given this chance of taking over this army that had been in this area of the Italian borders for many years and he went to Lodi and as he's suggested, he, first of all, the first thing he did was actually treat the men better, make sure they had good food, made sure they were um, healthy because they'd been stationed there for many years and they were, as an army, the battalions of that area were fairly downtrodden and not very motivated. So the first thing that Napoleon did was just ensure that his men were, were well looked after. And then the Battle of Lodi itself, basically it's a crossing of the Adel River. There was a bridge and as William describes in his description, it was very bloody. He sent his troops to go over the bridge, this narrow bridge, actually a wooden bridge that the Austrians fired upon, of course, killing a lot of French infantry. But actually, as William says, the senior officers took up arms again and stormed the bridge and got them through and over the bridge and through cannon and through infantry and through cavalry as well the Austrians were sort of routed and had to quickly make their escape as William says away out of Lodi and retreat and this term because of his success at this battle the French army or his French soldiers then started to refer to Napoleon as the little corporal but that's not really in the sense of his height or stature more in the sense of kind of unknown or lowly ranked so it had nothing to do with napoleon's height because apparently and we i'm sure we all know this in the revisionist history he wasn't actually that short he was basically the average height if not a little bit more than the average height for a frenchman of that time but this little corporal nickname that he got was because he was sort of unknown and of course he was corsican as well and initially there'd been a certain amount of maybe quizzical attitude to napoleon 
uh, from these soldiers, but they soon realised because of the success of his campaign and the way he looked after them and the way he planned the battles and so forth that uh, actually he was very good at winning. <laughs> and at the end of the day, if you're in an army, that's the main thing you want to hear. And I think actually the at the Battle of Lodi, if I remember correctly, the casualties on the Austrian side were around about 5,000 and 200 horses were killed. And the casualties on the French side were just a little bit above a 1,000. So, uh, I mean, it's horrible really, isn't it, when you weigh up a battle success on how many dead were on one side and how many dead were on the other. But in a way, that's sort of all you can do. It is, unfortunately, a kind of simplistic way of measuring success in war, isn't it? ventured to Cassano again in the evening and the next day by the same route to Milan, passing through the village of Vinzago, situated on the canal from Faprio to Milan. The village of Bellinzago is also here on the canal. Here I noticed a lofty tower of circular form, the top surrounded by an iron railing and leaning many feet from the perpendicular. Gisette, Cambiago, Caponago, Agrate. Every village possessed a large church, and some of them more than one, the fronts nearly all being richly ornamented. About a mile from Monza, we passed a large mansion, a short distance from the road, at the gates leading to which were four finely executed marble statues on pedestals of Apollo, Minerva, Ceres and Pomona. The country through which our route lay appeared to be exceedingly fruitful, abounding with vines, mulberries and fruit trees, but more meadowland and more timber than in the district betwixt Milan and Monza. It was also well watered by mountain streams. In fact, they understand the process of irrigation to perfection in the Lombardian states, conducting the water in every direction and by means of sluices, causing it to overflow the surface at pleasure, so as to counteract the long season of drought in the summer, being a bountiful provision of providence that the drier the season and the greater the heat the more abundant the quantity of snow that melts on the mountains, and the supply to flow over the plains always fully equals to the demand. February 21st. I now have every reason to expect that my residence at Milan is drawing to a close. I am therefore, after two years of close and unremitting toil, about to release myself for the remainder of my sojourn here, and endeavour to see a little more of this celebrated city, and where I had spent both some very happy and some very miserable hours. The first four months I was here alone, unable to speak the language, no tools to work with, and a great many difficulties thrown in my way by those whose real interest it was to have acted different. Well, but what of that? I have triumphantly surmounted them all. I have worked the line under circumstances of the most disadvantageous kind, such as not having engines sufficient, and some of what we had not worth a rush, especially the Frenchmen. 
and I can also say that through the winter of 1840-41, to when every line on the continent was obliged to suspend operations, and when the quantity of snow and the severity of the weather was unequalled in the memory of the oldest inhabitants, we never missed one single train, and have never had a single accident of any kind. Furthermore, I was put into a workshop with bare walls, and I can now look around and see it stocked with tools sufficient for all our purposes, the result of my own skill and perseverance, and made too, in the very teeth of a management or administration, as they term, the head of which Mr. Thomas would grasp at everything he could lay hold of, even descending to the low and pitiful action of cheating the poor workmen by taking advantage of the exchanges, and malting, so that's uh, another word, an old word for tricking, and malting them in this way, sometimes out of a considerable sum, holding back the money to pay wages with, till the last moment, and then sending them down a quantity of light gold, so that the poor fellows, when they went to the market, was obliged to put up with a loss in this way, as they could not do without the money, and there was no changing before ten o'clock on Monday. Yes, this was the sort of gentleman I had to deal with, a man that held the important office of Belgian consul, no less, of which country he was a native, but he has been like a great many more, for soon after my departure he was dismissed from his office, with disgrace, and a very different system of management has, I believe, been the result. OK, I'm going to stop here because William's reached this point where he's summing up his time on the railway, so it seems a good time to stop, and it'll probably be the end of the episode as well. I just want to refer to a couple of things before we finish that are mentioned in this section. The first thing that William mentions, how this area is very verdant and how the agriculture is very productive, because he's walking back from Kasana to Adda and he's going along the Naviglia Martasana, which is a canal, which is one of these medieval canals that was built in this region of a water distribution system that was very effective at keeping this whole area irrigated, obviously for growing crops. And Lombardy, along with other parts of northern Italy, like the Po Valley, is fortunate, obviously, with its proximity to the mountains and the Alps and the, the water that melts in the Alps comes down the rivers and helps to be used for irrigation in that region. And uh, it is very true that there'd been a sophisticated system of canals and irrigation channels that had been developed over the years, kind of going back to Roman times, not surprisingly, but much more so with further development in medieval times. In fact, Leonardo da Vinci, one of the things he got involved in was uh, being involved in some of this engineering work and designs. He refers to it in his written works, and he had a very good understanding of it and was certainly in some way an advisor. He certainly was involved to some degree in designing and um, advising on irrigation. And in fact, in my research, I came across a journal from a visiting British engineer who is doing a report on the irrigation system of this area. And he's a Lieutenant Baird Smith, R. Baird Smith. Don't know what the R is for. Robert, maybe. Roger. Roger. Roger Baird Smith, Lieutenant first Bengal engineers uh, anyway he writes this report about this irrigation system so it must have been quite impressive if people from uh, the UK or from the British Empire were there because he was there to see how they could maybe adopt similar techniques in the 
areas of northern India near the Himalayas. And uh, actually his account is about 1850, a little bit later than William's journal. Quite interesting reading. There's some little nuggets in there that I found quite similar to how William writes. Interestingly, he refers to being spied on by the Austrian authorities and complaining about it. Maybe suggesting this idea of how, you know, the growing demand for Italian unification was there because they didn't want this Germanic and Austrian influence over their regions like Lombardy because of things such as uh, having untrustworthy officers, if you like, of the Austrian Secret Service keeping tabs on what they were doing. And I have to say, I only really scanned the book, but uh, it gives an interesting thing of being sort of... Because he says I'd, I'd been given a letter of authority that I could do this. And although I'm a military man, I'm only looking at the civil engineering sides of it. I'm paraphrasing what he says a little bit. And so he's outraged that they demand to look at his notebooks and uh, he says, I've got nothing to hide. Just another little insight there into this outside influence and a kind of untrustworthy government that may have been around at the time. Uh, Austrian rule that was happening over this part of northern Italy and the, the growing unhappiness there was about it in these Italian regions and you know this of course is what all is leading to the desire for Italian unification but obviously the irrigation system impresses William as well now like a lot of canals in the UK it's obviously more of a recreational thing and people cycle and walk along it and stuff like that although it's still linked to irrigation as well. Now, the next thing I just wanted to say, because William's sort of summing up his time at the railway, and unfortunately that is about all he says about the railway and running the railway. He doesn't give any more day-to-day -day details about his time as an engineer and his day job, which I do find personally very frustrating, but there you are. I can't make him write what I wanted to back in 1840. He just doesn't say very much about the day-to-day -day things. In Mexico, later on, he does talk a lot more about it. But who knows? Maybe he wasn't that comfortable being a railway engineer. I don't know. It was probably pretty hard work. He was driving the trains a lot every day. And I think they had six services a day to and from Monza. I'm sure he was probably having <laughs> to do quite a lot of that train driving. So... You will hear later on he spends the rest of his time, quite a bit, still to go in Milan looking at the sights and sounds. But I just wanted to say a little bit more about what I found out about the railway that I haven't been able to read from his journals. The first is that in William's time, six locomotives get exported to Milan to be used on the railway. Four of them are built in the UK, one is built in France and one is built in Belgium. The first two are the Milano and Lombardo that he references when he's doing the trials, and they were built by, as we know, J&G Rennie of London, probably under licence of a Stevenson's design. Sounds like they weren't very good from other things I've read, other than aside from what William says. Then there were two more from Britain. One's called the Brianza, and of course the other one's called the Adder. In the previous episode, I said to Anthony, I was grasping, trying to remember the other names. Of course, they're all names of rivers or geographical features of the area, aren't they? So, of course, it's called the Adder. And then the one built in France is called the Lambro, and the one built in Belgium is called the Monza. And these last four, whether they were built in the UK or overseas, were probably based on a development of Stevenson's designs, called the Patentee, and that was a what they call a 222 engine. 
222 refers to the, the wheels and axles and how the power was distributed. So, for example, on the rocket, he just had a big wheel at the front and one trailing behind, and the big wheel at the front was where the power was driven. On a 222, it's uh, slightly longer. You have an axle at the front of two wheels. You have an axle in the middle, which is the power one that's driving the power. And then you have one at the back trailing which wasn't powered but this was a longer and much more stable platform and it was a development that Stevenson did to improve his railway engine so this is a simplistic way of saying it you begin with the rocket you then go to the planet which is a slightly different again configuration of wheels and power driven wheels and then you go to the patentee which is the 222 ones I think the planet is called a 220 and the patent team was a 222 and uh, the 222 actually becomes the standard railway locomotive layout that a lot more companies then adopt because it's actually a stabler platform it means you can have more room at the back for your firebox and for your driver and it's just stable it's a bit longer there's more distance between the front and back axles it's just a better way of building a locomotive and this is the one that then actually gets exported more widely under George Stevenson's design, probably built under license. Now, William says the engines weren't worth a rush. He might well be referring to the first two engines there, because apparently it doesn't seem they were very reliable, and he doesn't like the, the one built in France, or the Frenchman, as he refers to it as well, <laughs> which apparently seems to have kept breaking down. Now, the one built in Belgium, pretty certain, I mean, I don't know, but very likely was built by an ironworks called John Cockerell. Sounds very English for a Belgian ironworks, but John Cockerell, all his family were English or British, and they'd all, essentially, John Cockerell spends nearly all his life, although his family history is all British in Belgium, he sets up his, it's actually his father sets up a works there, but then he inherits it, and uh, with his brother they run it. And um, they actually built the first one in Belgium, the Le Beige, to run on Belgium railways seems very likely that they were the ones who built the one that was then sent to Milan as well and the other thing that makes sense that these were 222 engines is that the ones that were exported just a year earlier to the Napoli Porcini line were also 222 engines built under license from George Stevenson's design so it's all pointed to the fact that these engines were probably of the 222 configuration just about the line itself. Interesting, William, when he first describes going to Italy, talks about being the Milan-Venice line. And that doesn't ever seem to have really been an option. Once it's got to Monza, it didn't seem to go further east to Venice. Now it goes up to Como, to Lake Como. And so it actually went more north than east. So that's how the line got extended. And that's the route it takes to this day. And just lastly to say, it did demonstrate very quickly the popularity and the commercial benefits of having a railway. I've seen a reference of 150,000 passengers being carried from its opening up until December, which makes sense with what William says, because he says it's uh, 169,000, and the reference I've seen is more than 150,000, so that makes sense with what William says. And also, areas like Sesto Giovanna, and eventually Monza itself as well, of course, you know, it did lead to their industrialisation. As a direct result of the railway running along those areas, they became more industrialised. 
also the post in um, Italy started using this line very quickly as well for delivery mail. So like in all other parts of uh, Europe, this line soon demonstrated its economic value. So, lastly, <laughs> I just wanted to say something about this reference that William makes about the despicable trick of this Mr. Thomas malting or tricking the poor men out of their wages by giving them light gold. And you may well say, what the hell does that mean? And that is, is something it's, it's taken me quite a lot of time to find out what it meant. If you just Google light gold or currency or anything like that, all that comes up is uh, advice on how you should invest in gold or paint swatches about lovely types of decorative colour that you can put on your walls. So I had to do that thing that you can do with Google where you, you just say I want the exact words, light gold. And the only thing that came up, but it thankfully it then did help me understand what it was about, was a reference to it in Hansard, similar to this time, maybe a little bit later, where an MP is getting up in Parliament to talk about how agricultural workers are being unfairly paid or mistreated by their bosses. And uh, this MP is getting up and complaining about the fact that they're being paid in light gold. And the other alternative term for it quite often is light coin. I was hoping to keep it short, but it's really hard to do. But just to sort of explain, in those days, coins had an intrinsic value. There was precious metals in the coins themselves. For example, in the guinea, there was about 25% of 22 karat gold in a guinea. And of course, a guinea, a gold guinea, had to be a certain size and weight. Otherwise, it was deemed to be light and not proper tender. Now, the currency in Lombardy, Venetia at this time was actually the Austrian lira. I think, sorry, I'll have to look that up. The Lombardian Venetian lira, or lira austriaca, was made of 4.33 grams of silver with a 9 to 10% purity ratio. Six lira were equal to the scudo, which was equivalent to the Austrian Konventionsale. The lira was divided into 100 centesimi. Coins were minted in Milan, Venice and Vienna. But I'm sure there must have been a similar thing going on. And what happened was coins would become light through various reasons, probably most likely through criminal activity. People would clip the coins and they would cut bits off the edge and then they would reshape it so you couldn't notice by eye that they'd done it. And coin clipping and other methods and other methods was called coin sweating where you get a bunch of coins in a bag and you shake them and shake them and shake them and literally the little bits of fragments that fall off as you shake them and dust is collected again and that was called coin sweating and that's put aside then to basically make new coins out of the other coins so this is all fraudulent activity and another one was punching where you'd punch a hole in the coin take that little bit of metal that you'd punched out of it and then you'd hammer it again hammer the um, hole that you would made shut and actually there was quite recently a series there's been a, a book and then a series on this about a very famous gang that did this in yorkshire in Cragvale, and the series and the book is called Gallows Pole, and it's about a band of coin clippers who did this, and they did it extensively, and it's said at one time it may have even reduced the UK economy by 9%, and it was all from this gang in the Cragvale area, 
of Yorkshire, right out in rural Yorkshire. They were very, very poor. They resorted to clipping coins, using the clippings to make new coins. But what they cleverly did was they didn't make coins of the realm. They made Portuguese coins. They had a stamp to make Portuguese coins out of the clippings of the coins that they'd clipped. Because these coins... They were accepted as legal tender, even though they were foreign. They had value, so shopkeepers and people like that would still accept them. Now, just to try and explain, in the UK what happened, and I can only assume there's a similar thing going on in Lombardy, Venetia. In the UK what happened was, if you were a shopkeeper and you got a light gold coin, you'd look at it and go, hang on a minute, this seems a bit light or it looks a bit of a funny shape. I'm not going to accept this for its full value. I'm only going to accept it for a certain amount of value. So it's a bit like giving someone a pound coin and the shopkeeper saying, no, it's not worth 100 pence, it's only worth 80 pence. And so you can only get 80 pence worth of goods with it. And that was basically what William's referring to here, something like this, that the poor workmen were being given light coins and then the shopkeepers in Milan would look at them and go, yeah, I'll accept it, but I'm not accepting it as a full Austrian lira. So you can only get that amount's worth of goods from it. And uh, when he talks about the exchanges, what the British government did was you could kind of take your light coin to essentially like the post office and you could have it exchanged for proper coins that hadn't been clipped. But of course, this is extremely costly to the whole UK government. They were losing money hands over fist. And this is essentially why precious metals in coins got phased out, because, uh, you know, you couldn't maintain a system where you were relying on the source of precious metals. And it's actually also why foreign coins were being accepted as currency. It just couldn't continue. I mean, imagine today if we literally had real gold in our coins and silver in our coins. You know, there just isn't enough around to do it. And that ultimately meant the introduction of banknotes and coins now, as we use, made out of much harder metals such as copper and nickel, the alloys of them that are very hard. So, A, they don't deteriorate and can't be so easily clipped or debased is the word. The kind of overall term for devaluing these coins is called coin debasement. Obviously, our coins aren't literally worth anything. But, you know, in those days, a coin was worth its weight in gold, silver, whatever. So these poor workers on the railway, this despicable Mr. Thomas, must have been, and they must have been quite hard to make sure he got clipped coins or dodgy-looking coins. Sometimes it was just actually natural erosion as well because the coins were passing from hand to hand all the time. They were deteriorating and getting lighter anyway. And that was another problem with using precious metals because they tend to be a bit softer. You know, gold and uh, silver tend to be softer than other better alloys. So these poor chats were being deliberately paid in money that wasn't really worth the full amount that they were entitled to. So it is pretty blooming low. And he must have, to assemble all this dodgy currency to have done that as well, was a deliberate move in his part. So don't like Mr. Thomas, that's for sure. I think I've explained it, and I could only assume in Lombardy, Venetia, and under Austrian rule, there was a similar sort of thing going on where people, they had time, they could go to the exchange and get their money exchanged for the full value type of money that was available and not have to use these light debased coins that the railway company run by Mr. Thomas was giving them. If you read about the Gallows Pole novel, you'll hear about all the, they're called the Crag Vale coiners. That explains how they got very sophisticated at doing it. 
I think it's their leader of the gang was a man called Hartley. A lot of the leaders all end up getting hanged because eventually the authorities discovered what was going on. The other possible meaning that William may be referring to is it could have been that the money was in some way some sort of company token that was given out to the workers to use and they could only spend it in certain shops or it would only be accepted for a certain value by shopkeepers. But I suspect, because William uses this term light gold, that it's more to do with the actual coins being light or debased in some way and not worth their full value. I think to people of that era... This would have been a problem that was quite familiar to people because fraudulent coins at this time were very, very common. Really wanted to get this short and I haven't managed it, but like gold explaining that is really a bit involved and uh, this is one of these occasions where you really, personally, I'd never heard of it and I was only fortunate that I found this reference to it in Hansard that actually then unlocked the whole thing to me and I kind of understood then if it's not exactly as I'm describing it, something similar must have been going on where the coinage being given to the workers of the Milan Monza Railway isn't, for whatever reason, worth its full value. And so they can only get a certain amount of food and other goods with it that they need to feed their families. The only kind of nearest modern-day equivalent of it, sometimes you still get it in the UK... If you've been in Scotland and you're using a Scottish £5 note or £10 note, and particularly like where I am, which is miles away from Scotland in the south of the country, you go into shop, you hand over this different-looking Scottish £10 note, and they look at you like, I'm not accepting that, you know, particularly in like small news agents and stuff. This has happened to me. And there's not much really you can do. You kind of just have to go, oh, all right, I'll have to go somewhere else. They look at it, go, Ooh, particularly sometimes if it's a young shopkeeper as well who's not come across either a Scottish five or ten pound note, or occasionally you get also five pences made in the Isle of Man or the Channel Islands or somewhere. <laughs> and uh, they look at them and go, What's that? I don't know that. <laughs> it is legal tender. I am justified in handing it to you for the goods that I wish to acquire. You, sir, are obliged to accept this money. So I'm going to end this 27th episode here. Sorry, it's reached the sort of hour length. I was having to explain quite a lot of complicated things and it's taken rather longer than I would have liked. But there you are, you can always, as I said before, knock up the speed and save yourself a bit of time in listening to it. As I say, there's all those ways I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast that you can contact me with. Certainly, if you know more about light gold and coin debasement and maybe what was happening in Austria itself or Lombardy, Venetia at the time, and have a better idea of what William's referring to there than I do, you might have a actually better and more detailed and more comprehensive knowledge of it than myself. So, um, yeah, it'd be great if, if there are any coin experts out there. I mean, currency was a very, very different thing then. You know, the Spanish dollar or the eight real, as it's called, which William's actually involved a lot in minting out in uh, Mexico because Mexico is a huge resource of silver. That was a, a universally accepted currency around the world at that time, to some degree, a bit like the dollar is today. But of course, it was 
at these times, current Suezes were based on either the silver standard or the gold standard, which actually linked them physically in a way to the amount of reserves that countries had of those types of metals. Now we have a, a system really that's based on the confidence in a currency and its value. So because uh, people have confidence in the American economy, they'll accept dollars universally rather than uh, other currencies. It's really odd in a way value thing, isn't it? It's, um, in some ways you kind of think, what is an intrinsic value of something? Gold itself is probably more valuable now because of its use in electronics and stuff as a precious metal in that regard than as a currency. How are things valued anyway? Is it their, just their rarity in that regard? Perhaps a painting by an old master is more, is more valuable than gold. I mean, they're still mining gold, aren't they? So um, it's quite a big philosophical question. So yeah, that's the end of episode 27. Do subscribe as well. That helps to help with the numbers listening to the podcast. And do spread the word about it to anyone who you think will find it interesting. So lastly, if you have been, thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.